So you wrote this piece titled Starved for Justice. What's it all about? The IMF and the World Bank are sort of the main sort of financial, international financial institutions that, you know, have a hand in sort of all, all developing countries around the world. And so in the 80s, they were propagating these structural adjustment programs um, mm-hmm. in developing countries in response to the debt crisis and economic mm-hmm. stagnation. So in Haiti, what that meant was liberalizing Haiti's economy and facilitating international trade. So what they did was they lowered tariff levels on key agricultural products like rice from 50% to 3%. They implemented a free-floating exchange rate, so the Haitian good was no longer tied to the U.S. dollar. And they eliminated import quotas, so you could have a ton of things coming in. I mean, this caused a ton of problems for the community in Haiti because what happened was that it really just... It's it sort of these the, the imposition of these policies sort of made it so that subsistence production was transformed to dependence on the global market because Haiti used to be subsistently was able to provide their own production of rice. And But now what has happened is that they're dependent on the global marketplace and we know the problems with that, especially when you don't tie your um, exchange rate, you know, they're, they're being swamped by um, pricing. They're, you know, they're, they're, they can't afford the, the goods anymore and so you have these American food imports that are flooding the market because it was just cheaper, right? Yeah. You know, who, and the U.S. is subsidizing their domestic production. Yeah. Um, and so it's just so so cheap in terms of um, quantity and and, um, and price that, uh, you know, it's become a staple in the Haitian, you know, a food a food staple now when it used to sort of be like a luxury good. Yes. Um, that's sort of another problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think that it's just important to talk about how these reforms really have impacted the way that, you know, whether farmers are still working in Haiti, you know, a lot of them had lost their livelihoods. You have um, the general population that, that to you know, at first, cheap rice for everyone. It was great, but you know, that can't last forever. And immediately the good depreciated in value. Um, and now we see it's what, like 38 to one or something ridiculous. So I, I mean, it's, it's just so expensive for them now to do the import. And they're, I mean, even today they're importing 80% of the rice, mm-hmm. um, which suggests like these import quotas are, are still in place. We, we know import tariffs um, are still low. We know that this free floating exchange rate is still in, in place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's increased sharply in the last year or so, which, yeah. which is making many basic food staples. I had a friend of mine tell me that yesterday, actually, like uh, he has some family members who have farms in, in, in rural areas, and mm-hmm. they they actually they're growing their own rice, but it's so cheap, like they can't sell it in the market, so the stuff ends up getting wasted because. Yeah. It just it's it that's part of the it seems that's part of the unintended consequences of that too, right? Like, you know, pockets are still 
producing rice, but it's like you can't sell the excess anywhere because it's yeah. like exactly it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's still farmers that are trying to trying to still farm, and that's something that that you know is part of the solution, right? Is trying to yeah. give them those tools. But there's also climate change happening at the same time, and yeah. which is a big problem that we know Haiti more than you know a lot of other countries are going to be facing. Yeah, you know, the short end of the stick there, and so I mean, there, there's a variety of issues with that too, right? When you have rice farmers. Um, for instance, when there's an earthquake and there, when there's foreign aid coming in in different ways, so like emergency humanitarian foreign aid coming in, mm-hmm. again, we're trying to work with the international community to to express our concerns about how that aid is coming in, how that system functions. We saw mm-hmm. with the earthquake in 2010 how you know aid was coming in in a way that was very much not a rights-based approach, and so all the money was sort of you know bypassing the Haitian government, local mm-hmm. institutions, um, local communities. And so, you know, what what we need really is for um, cash to get into the hands of Haitians so that that money can be used in those marketplaces and get those rice farmers to be able to sell their products instead Mm -hmm. of just having more. I mean, you know, when you're in Haiti, when I travel to Haiti, you know, it's it's really shocking to see how many rice bags, USAID rice bags are just all over the place. Yeah, yeah. It was really shocking when I first went. So, so as a from a as a lawyer from a legal standpoint, are you holding these um, neoliberal institutions uh, uh, to task based on whatever policy they might have? Are you are you approaching it from a legal standpoint? What pressure? In what ways are, you, are is your organization pressuring these these institutions to do better? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that's sort of where um, where I wanted to have the angle come from because you know people have been talking about these really harmful aid policies for a long time. Bill Clinton himself even apologized, mm-hmm. right, on behalf of these policies that USAID was involved with and how you know they they just wanted to lessen the burden of Haitians to create their own food and and it turned out to be a very negative thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no repercussions ensued from that, by the way. Um, but yeah, I think that's the important part that we sort of want to bring to to the discussion is because there are, there are obligations that foreign states have when they are, you know, working, when they are members of international financial institutions like the IMF, like the World Bank, they do have responsibilities. And so a lot, a lot of that is not spoken about. And it is sort of a growing area of law, I'll have to say. Um, it's called extraterritorial obligations, right? So, mm-hmm. so states do have their own obligations towards their own citizens, but they do have obligations outside of the country as well, um, especially when they're working in an IFI, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they, 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 in this case, we are arguing that they have breached those extraterritorial ob- obligations um, mm-hmm. and jeopardized the right to food and not just the right to food, right? Of, mm-hmm. Because it's linked to so many other rights when you don't have, when you have malnutrition, um, which mm-hmm. we're seeing in Haiti, and the repercussions of that on education, on health, and also on future generations, right? I mean, this has been happening for such a long time now. We see that this is happening generation after generation. This is something we really want to stop. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, so states do have, you know, these these obligations um, that are, you know, related to the enjoyment of human rights beyond their border borders. So for mm-hmm. instance, they have to avoid acts that create a foreseeable risk of impairing the enjoyment of economic and social rights extraterritorial. 
extraterritorially. Um, they're also triggered in situations when states exercise decisive influence or take measures to realize um, economic and social rights extraterritorially, like mm -hmm. member states of IFIs, who often play a critical part in what the IFI is going to be doing abroad. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, ETOs, they, they've been re increasingly recognized by national and international courts. They've been widely incorporated into treaty monitoring bodies. Mm -hmm. um, we saw a while ago the International Court of Justice, which is the main court um, that disputes the state um, states can bring disputes between themselves um that israel had you know is exercising effective um extraterritorial jurisdiction in the occupied palestinian territories and the court said okay well the wall they built was in violation of their extraterritorial obligations mm -hmm. so we do see that it's you know increasing we also know that um these ETOs, they include global obligations. So those are obligations that are set out in the UN Charter mm -hmm. and in various human rights instruments that require states to take joint and separate action to promote and respect human rights. Mm -hmm. And that includes the right to food. By the way, when you say food, do you just mean rice or do you mean like a whole category? So I talk about rice because it's the main sort of, it's the most obvious sort of um, violation. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about right, right to food, I'm talking about rice, but in the paper, I also talk about like poultry. Yes, um, I saw it that. wasn't okay. just rice, mm -hmm. um, but mainly that's just like the best example that I can give. Well, so, at, so one of the things that, that I've learned from my colleagues in Haiti over the past five years um, is that we see foreign actors are often failing to take responsibility when they don't deliver on their promises and when their work actually causes more suffering in the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the inter international community has a long history of, of trying to help Haiti going back to the 2010 earthquake and beyond. And, you know, sometimes their intentions are good, but it has, um, you know, it's been amply documented that, that, the, you know, the world often makes matters worse. And so, you know, my organization, IJDH, has worked um, and works with um, the BAI, which is a human rights law firm in Haiti, to push for accountability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we work on the cholera, cholera epidemic, peacekeeping, sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, we were there in the response to the earthquake. And so a, a part of what I wanted to talk about in this piece was, you know, that's not being as talked about, which is where is the um, where does the international community fit in with the food crisis that is imminent um, and increasing? And, you know, they do have a long history of being involved and, and we can direct, draw a direct line from sort of the policies that they've been implementing for decades now to where we stand today. And so I was really I really thought it was important to highlight that role um, because they do have such a, a critical impact on the country and on, you know, foreign aid in general, how that affects the population's human rights. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a fairly obvious one that I could, you know, direct link some of their policies with violations of, of Haitians' human rights. And so that's sort of what um, inspired me to, to write the piece. 
so the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, IJH, is a U.S.-based solidarity nonprofit organization. Uh, we work in solidarity with Haitian communities to tackle the root causes of injustice impacting human rights. Um, so we're focused on amplifying voices from Haiti. Um, we were formed in, in 2004. Uh, we're based in Massachusetts, um, but our staff works from many corners of the U.S. and Canada. I'm a senior staff attorney with IJDH. I lead our international community accountability work, our work to hold foreign state and non-state actors accountable for their human rights violations in Haiti. Um, we focus on the international community's response to Haiti and push for more responsibility for human rights abuses. What are non-state actors? So non-state actors, so we have, we deal with both foreign states, so, you know, the U.S., Canada, France, um, and non-state actors. So that would incorporate, um, you know, international organizations like the United Nations or international financial institutions or multinational corporations. Okay. Right, so international, yeah, international actors that don't fall under sta uh, foreign states that are involved in Haiti and that interfere in Haiti's domestic politics. Okay. Do, do you find it uh, uh, harder or easier to, um, to, to, to maybe go after is the wrong word, to, to hold accountable uh, states, nation states versus non-state actors? There's different challenges to both. Um, yeah, I would say it's the the legal framework is much more developed when we're talking about foreign states. So in that sense, it's a little a little bit more clear cut. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about um, non-state actors, uh, you know, it, it it is a bit more complex given that um, given that development, but also just because it is a you know a, a plethora of states that have come together under a particular treaty that have that are enforcing these times of these types of actions, and so yeah, that brings a whole other set of complications. So, what organizations are you affiliated with in Haiti? Well, so IJDH works in partnership with a uh, Haiti-based public interest law firm, uh, the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, BAI, and that was founded in 1995. So BAI is a recognized law firm in Haiti, and they're, they're based in Paul France. Um, so, yeah, IJDH was formed from BAI as an organization that could help support the work of the BAI on the international stage. So we provide structural support to build capacity and impact of the BAI. So, so, so uh, are you recognized or designated as a legal entity by the Haitian government? Or is it through your partnership with B BAI, right? Yeah. So, so BAI is a recognized law firm in Haiti. So uh, they actually used to receive uh, most of its support from Haiti's governments, um, assisting the judiciary with human rights cases, mostly from Haiti's 1991 to 94 de facto military di dictatorship. And over those three years, the, the military and its paramilitary allies murdered 
you know, over 5,000 civilians, um, you know, be tortured uh, hundreds of thousands more. And so the Haitian government formed the BAI both to help victims of the coup obtain justice and to assist the overall effort to improve the justice system. But since uh, 2004, it has received most of its support from IGDH and no support from any political organizations. How are you funded and what is your U.S. tax designation? So we're a nonprofit organization. IJDH is currently funded by donations from individuals, foundations, and other non-governmental partners. We, yeah, we've never received any money from governments or political parties in Haiti or the U.S. We're a you know, 501c3 nonprofit organization charity in the U.S. Are you affiliated with any uh, hate, uh, organizations in the diaspora in, in, in Canada or uh, in the U.S.? Uh, do you have some kind of a, a, a relationship or partnership or support from, from the Haitian diaspora in Canada or in the U.S.? So IGH and BAI work in partnership. Um, but we, you know, we have allies and we work with a number of different organizations on the ground in Haiti. Um, but, uh, it is IJDH and BI that are the, the main partnership. So how do you, how do you measure success and, and how many cases or outcomes have you won or lost? Let's say in the last, I don't know, three, three years or four years or five years. So BAI takes on many cases that have, you know, substantive wins. So it gets Haitian activists and lawyers out of jail. It defends them in court. It gets the word out to Haitian media. Uh, it also establishes legal precedent for prosecution of sexual and gender-based violence in Haitian courts. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we often take on cases with strategic importance, so, for instance, 20 years ago, we helped prosecute Haiti's most complex human rights case that convicted over 50 men, most of them members of the Haitian military um, and, a, and a government-affiliated paramilitary group, FRAP, uh, for their roles in the violent Rabbit Toe Massacre. Um, you know, it, what's more nuanced are the cases we take on with strategic importance where we often are up against some of the most powerful institutions in the world. Um, so in these types of cases, you aren't always going to win, but there is a lose to win strategy that is always useful in pushing the envelope. So in the case of the UN's introduction of cholera to Haiti with its peacekeeping mission, you know, the, the evidence was so obvious in the beginning that they introduced cholera to the country that we were hoping the UN would would launch an investigation and provide a just response. But when that didn't happen, we started to look at legal avenues to hold them, the UN accountable. So we pursued legal claims through the UN's internal claim system. But when the UN refused to receive those claims, we filed a lawsuit in court in the US, um, a class action lawsuit. But uh, in 2015, the court held that the UN's immunity prevented it from hearing the case. And this decision was upheld by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in 2016. But, you know, despite immense odds, some of the most marginalized were able to successfully stand up to the world's most powerful organization and demand respect for their rights. And important changes came about over the past decade from their advocacy, both inside and outside the court. 
um, which is something we strongly believe in, uh, you know, including a historic apology from the UN in 2016 and an acknowledgement of its role in the epidemic. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we've also had success with a UN peacekeeper sexual exploitation abuse. So BAI secured a, a landmark child support judgment in Jacmel in Haiti in 2020 on behalf of one of their clients who was impregnated and abandoned by a UN peacekeeper of Uruguayan nationality. Um, so, you know, to our knowledge, the, the BAI child support claims against UN peacekeepers are among the first cases of their kind in the world. And we really hope that it's going to encourage similar, similar claims around the world. Uh, how do you, um, how do you use your, your resources in terms of, you know, focused on, you know, the courtroom, the legal aspects of it and, and the role of media? Uh, what kind of a balancing act do you do there? Are you are you are you equally as uh, uh, as as dedicated to uh, getting the word out, or are you are you more surgical in that uh, in terms of when you think you need a particular case to be known by the media at large, uh, or are you mostly focused on? you know, getting, getting your, your work done so you can go in, 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 these, in the courtrooms or through the legal route? What, what do you think your organization is, is most focused on? Spending so, more of its energy. Uh, I mean, IJDH believes in movement lawyering. So that's something um, that, you know, we hold quite dear and that that's inherent in our partnership with the BAI uh, because we, we believe in, you know, taking on strategic cases that have, you know, that have perhaps a legal component to them, but are, are very much driven by advocacy both inside and outside of the courtroom. So mm-hmm. our litigation has shown how concerted and collective effort of victims and activists working closely with lawyers are critical to the fight for justice. So affected affected communities consistently, you know, mobilize by awareness building and peaceful demonstrations, just like in our cholera case, and and those types of actions really help to build a global movement, uh, which we did with cholera justice outside of the court, and that was critical to helping to put the pressure on the UN. So we really see, you know, the litigation as one aspect to what we're trying to do. Do, do you find that um, uh, these institutions that you 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 go after legally do you do you often find malice in what they're doing, or or is it a question of individuals within those organizations like the minister uh, uh, debacle? Like, is it just individuals within these institutions that aren't that aren't, that aren't following? Uh, the guidelines within those institutions, or do you think there's, you know, uh, something more nefarious institutionally sometimes when you go after uh, uh, these organizations or, or state state actors or non-state actors? Mm-hmm. So the international community has a long history of providing assistance to Haiti going back to the 2010 earthquake and beyond. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the intentions are good, but, you know, it's been amply documented that the world has often made matters worse. Um, 
you know, one thing I've learned from my colleagues in Haiti over the past five years is that foreign actors often fail to take responsibility when their work directly causes more suffering. So this mm-hmm. is a problem and this has become a pattern. So that's more what we focus on rather than particular motivations. Mm-hmm. This they, they are they are failing to take responsibility when their work does cause more suffering. We've seen that happen time and time again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the UN offers a highly relevant illustration of that problem. In Haiti, the UN logo symbolizes impunity and abuse. You know, the UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti, which of course was tasked with restoring peace and security and protecting human rights actually resulted in grave harm to the local population. And there's been no accountability for their crimes. So as I said, the UN peacekeeping mission introduced one of the deadliest cholera epidemics of modern times in the country, but it's failed to date to take legal responsibility for the harm it caused and has denied victims their right to effective remedy. Not to mention, you know, despite having a zero tolerance policy for sexual exploitation and abuse, UN peacekeepers have engaged in widespread um, abuse of women and children. Normally what happens is perpetrators return home without prosecution uh, and, and there's been a complete lack of reparations or recognition of victims' rights. So what the UN's done is set up a trust fund to support victims. But, they, you know, just like what they did in, with cholera, but both funds are voluntary and they have failed to consider that reparations are actually owed to victims. And of course, they, they've become very much unfunded. Well, and and this is not unique. I mean, Haiti's not unique, right? The, U, the mm-hmm. UN's handling of mass human rights claims around the world, uh, especially arising in the context of peacekeeping, has been the same story. So, so none of the voluntary funds that the UN's established have actually succeeded in providing reparations to victims. Why is that? Well, that because well, essentially, what they're doing is instead of acknowledging the legal rights of victims to have effective remedy, which is uh, you know a fundamental right that they have under international law, instead they're getting around it because of this immunity. Um, but let me add that they still have responsibilities. They still have obligations under the, the agreements that they signed with Haiti um, and all other peacekeeping missions around the world called the Status of Forces Agreement. Um, but they've been violating those agreements by just establishing a voluntary fund um, that, you know, for, for member states of the UN to contribute as they see fit. And so, you know, they're, they're not being funded. It also just doesn't provide victims a means to be able to enforce any of the actual promises that are made. Mm-hmm. So this okay. is where my organization, IJDH, has worked and, and continues to work alongside BEI to push for accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get some... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have the, the Start for Justice article uh, in the a link on the show notes for people to, to check out. Let's get some general, some legal definitions out of the way. What are extra territorial obligations uh, and are ETOs legally binding? Right. So so under international law, states have human rights obligations within their own territories and jurisdictions, right? And towards their own citizens. But in addition to that, states have extraterritorial obligations, we call them ETOs, related to the enjoyment of human rights beyond their borders. So, so states are obligated to, for instance, avoid acts 
or emissions that create a real risk of nullifying or impairing the enjoyment of economic, social, and cultural rights, uh, rights extraterritorially. So there's basically three situations in which uh, ETOs are triggered. So where the impairments of foreseeable results of state conduct, where states exercise effective authority or control over people or territories, um, like for instance, um, with Israel-Palestine, or where states find themselves in a position to exercise decisive influence extraterritorially. So for instance, international financial institutions that are, you know, affecting domestic policy in Haiti. So, you know, the, the Maastricht principles basically enumerate and define these ETOs. They're themselves not legally binding, um, but they explain uh, what ETOs are um, and the treaties upon which ETOs are based, like the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Political Rights are. So, where a state's acceded to the IC. ESCR, so the covenant, for example, it would be bound by the ETOs that flow from that treaty. Now, ETOs also include obligations of a global nature. So that's where states are obligated to take joint and separate action to promote human rights and do no harm through international activities. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. they do those activities through uh, neoliberal institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, right, and USAID. Are those some of those examples, and we can get into later, uh, that these countries decide? Okay. Okay. Exactly, yeah. So so international financial organizations um, do have responsibilities. They're also made up of member states who are making decisions, and then when you, you know, break down the control of an international financial institution like the World Bank or the IMF, for instance, you see who has voting control, right? And and that's based on sort of who's providing the most money. So you can see who has decisive influence. Um, You know, the United States, for instance, has, you know, quite a a substantial um, uh, control in those institutions. And so, for instance, would have a, a greater responsibility. So, so when you when you when you pursuing your cases, you you're doing. Do you go straight at the U.S.'s, or do you go through those institutions, or both, all of the above? When you, whoa. and is there a yeah, governing so body above? Is there a governing body above those institutions, or do you have to go through those institutions that are doing the harm in Haiti directly? Or, or nation states? So it really depends on sort of the issue that we're dealing with. Um, when we're talking about the food crisis and the article, for instance, we're talking about programs that have been enacted and implemented by USAID. Um, so that's, for instance, uh, you know, the U.S.'s body um, for international development. You also have international financial institutions that have a really strong um, hold over over uh, the policies that the government is is enacting in the country with respect to food policy. So it, it just sort of depends when you're talking about cholera and SCA, then you're talking about the United Nations. And so that would be, um, you know, you would be looking at different instruments of accountability in that case. You said the right to food is codified in Haiti's domestic law in the Constitution of 1987. What, what, what do you mean by that? 
So yeah, the right to food is codified when we're talking about Haiti's obligation. So the Haitian state obligation towards its people, um, the right to food is codified in the Haitian constitution, article 22, I believe, which recognizes the right of its citizens to um, decent housing, education, food, social security, things like that. So the constitution requires that the state respect, protect, and fulfill a number of you know, related human rights as well, including the right to health, right to work, um, the right to education, and so forth. Uh, beginning in nineteen in the eighties, you write that because of imposed trade reforms by uh, international financial institutions like the World Bank and IMF, the Haitian diet has changed as a result. How so? So after the reforms, the influx of cheap American rice and poultry into the market increased Haitian consumption of these products. So that solidified them as a critical part of the people's everyday diet, as opposed to the luxury items that they once were. Um, it also changed the amount of calories they were able to consume due to the increased cost of food. So you know, according to the UN, the, the population consumed roughly 19,000 calories per day until 1985. And then in 1989, after the implementation of the policies, the calorie consumption declined uh, to about 1,600 calories per day, well below the, the recommended amount. Uh, my 76-year-old mother, I checked with her after I read your, 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 your article, and she said she, she, she remembered, like, that used to be something, rice was something like they ate maybe once a week or something like that, like, when she was growing up, you know? It, was, it right. wasn't, like, part of the diet on a daily basis, so it's always good to check at the ground level, you know? Exactly, how, exactly. How and that's are. really affect sort of like malnutrition in the country too, because it it has become such a staple and part mm -hmm. of nutrition is you know having a variety in your diet. So can you sue the Clintons? I mean, Bill, he did admit his culpability, right? Can you sue him as an individual? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> suing the Clintons themselves for the trade liberalization policies is not feasible. So the U.S. Constitution provides for, for presidential immunity from, from personal civil liability for actions taken within the executive capacity um, and subsequent case law affirms that the, the president is absolutely immune from, from personal liability for civil, da civil damages arising out of any official act taken while in office. Mm -hmm. I mean, suing the Clintons, you know, although perhaps satisfying, um, probably wouldn't address the larger systemic problem, which is that foreign states and, and international financial institutions are rarely held to account for decisions they make that, that negatively impact rights holders outside their territories. Can you talk about the free-floating exchange rate uh, and how did it impact the depreciation of the Haitian good? Sure. So a free-floating exchange regime is it's a flexible exchange rate system that's determined solely by market forces. So in other words, the currency's value fluctuates in response to foreign exchange market events. So prior to the forced implementation of this free-floating exchange rate system in, in Haiti in the, in the 90s, the value of the Haitian good had been fixed to the U.S. dollar at five to one. And this had been the case, I think, since 
1919 or something like that. So, so after the implementation of this free floating regime, the good immediately depreciated, reaching an exchange rate of uh, 38 good to one U.S. dollar by 2010. And it's and it's it's steadily depreciated since then. So I think it's currently valued at around 112 good to one U.S. dollar. I mean, this changes every day, but um, you know, this has really resulted in in a diminished purchasing power for Haitian, which makes makes food staples, you know, inc increasingly more affordable. And mm -hmm. like I said, malnutrition more more imminent. What are some of the uh, nutritional negative effects of food insecurities? Can you give us some examples of, of what that does? And you also talked about, uh, you touched a little bit on, this has some, some uh, generational impact as well, too. And if that's the case, is it hard uh, to make the argument of what current, the negative effects of current policies or past policies, can you project it towards the future uh, in the legal sense, or do you have to kind of stick to, you know, the effects of these past policies with within current, uh, uh, you know, uh, numbers that you come up with? Can you extrapolate and say, okay, it's affecting X number of people, you know, around the country this way, but in the future it could have, you know, even worse ramifications, or do you have to stick with just what what current data shows? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, you know, the part of the reason we put that in is because uh, it does affect current and future generations of Haitians, you know, right to food and, and food insecurity, i.e., you know, lack of access to food um, is going to affect generations to come. And so, you know, the rights of future generations is a developing area of international law. Um, so, you know, I didn't go into it in, in detail, but it certainly affects future generations and it has been affecting generations over the decades. This isn't a new, you know, this isn't a new issue. Policies from the U.S., from uh, IFIs have been affecting Haiti and affecting Haiti's food policy for decades if not for centuries, because we could go back to, you know, the independence debt um, and talk about how that's affected farmers because it, it did very much so. Um, Haiti was so in debt after that independence debt and the loans it had to take out to fund that debt that, you know, farmers had to, you know, were forced to take on a lot of that burden in terms of the coffee coffee export industry, you know, really tailoring their farming not to sustainable, um, you know, subsistence farming, but very much an export industry. And so, you know, I could, I could go into this more, but it, 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 it's been affecting Haiti for so long that, that you can draw a line from all the, you know, the interference. Um, but some of the, the some of the nutritional effects um, that you asked about, you know, living in in chronic food insecurity means that Haitians aren't going to be able to enjoy their their highest attainable standard of physical and mental health because of the negative impacts of, of um, starvation and malnutrition. So mm -hmm. malnutrition is not just about getting enough food it's about getting the right food so like mm -hmm. i said this means eating a diverse diet of nutritional foods and so you know the diet did shift in response to these imports and became less diverse um and you know like you were saying approximately one quarter of haitians caloric intake now is rice 
So, I mean, the resulting malnutrition really impacted children in particular um, because the effects of malnutrition during the first two years of development are, are largely irreversible. So, you know, these effects uh, increased vulnerability to diseases, developmental delays, stunted growth, um, even blindness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the and, and these kinds of things have been linked to, to poor mental development and school achievement. So it affects sort of the broad range of rights. Um, it affects, you know, sort of behavior, abnormalities, increased risk for, for diet-related health issues like cardiovascular disease, cancers, obesity, diabetes. Um so that's why people say, you know, and, di- and diabetes among Haitians has actually almost doubled since their diet was, you know, what people say Americanized in the in the mid 1980s. I did not know that. Um, so you 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 focus primarily on the you say in the article on the obligations of external actors in terms of trying to remedy the food insecurities in Haiti. You don't necessarily give the Haitian government a pass on their obligations either, but what's kind of like the ratio for you in terms of, you know, collectively as an organization? Uh, you know, do you focus more on these international, uh, uh, these external actors or how much, how much weight and effort do you put in into making sure the Haitian government has its house in order legally? Yeah, and so that's sort of where our partnership with BAI comes in. So, you know, BAI as a public interest law firm on the ground in Haiti um, also speaks out on justice issues regularly. And so we see that as something that's, you know, um, appropriately placed with BAI. Mm-hmm. But as an international organization, I mean, the whole reason we were funded is because Haitian human rights are largely determined in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, part of what IJDH can do is bring those voices to the international stage. And, you know, in Haiti's, in, in the example of Haiti, it's just such an important aspect to, you know, the difficulties and challenges that Haitians are facing with respect to their human rights because of the extremely powerful influence that the U.S., um, Canada, France, international financial institutions, multinational corporations have in Haiti um, since independence. And so it's just such a salient example of why we need to bring this into the uh, into the international space and why we need to hold accountable these actors because there is such a um a structurally unequal power dynamic that you see when you you know i've only worked in haiti for five years but it's just so obvious um the more and more i i learn about haiti um you know, and that's for various reasons. I mean, the Haitian government has been indebted to to the international community literally since its independence, um, mm-hmm. since 1825, when France um, required it to, you know, imposed upon it this independence debt. And so they they've been caught up in this cycle of aid dependence ever since. And so that really affects the way. Haiti can behave. And that that has to do with their domestic policy, too. I think 
one of the recent budgets had 20% of foreign aid, you know, as part of its budget. That's not even, you know, the humanitarian aid and, and all other programs that are happening in Haiti. And so the, the <clears throat> I don't want to say the hands are tied, but the Haitian government definitely like we need to acknowledge um, the context in these situations. So, yes, it's it's undeniable that the Haitian government bears a, a heavy responsibility for the food insecurities that Haitians are facing daily, but so too does the international community. And in fact, the, what we've seen and what I'm trying to explain in this article is that the international community has actually impeded the Haitian government's ability to comply with their own human rights obligations because it's forcing the government to implement reforms that are undercutting Haiti's agricultural sector and that are inhibiting it from investing in programs and services that would help alleviate the consequent effects of food insecurity. And part of that is the fact that you know, a lot of the austerity measures that they are and continue to include in their loans, right, as conditions for loaning money to Haiti, um, have really affected the way that the government's been able to put money towards social social services. And that and that's not just Haiti. That that part of it is not just Haiti. They've been doing this with other marginalized countries around the world for decades. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. Mm-hmm.